From Birmingham, I'm Miranda Fulmore. One of the most contentious political fights right now is over immigration, but many don't realize a notable moment that shaped our current immigration system happened in Talladega, Alabama. In 1991, Cuban detainees took over a federal prison there. That event is the starting point for the new season of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Co-hosts Chip Brantley and Andrew Beck Grace first learned of the takeover while digging through a photo archive. Brantley spoke about it with WBHM's Cody Short. So, Chip, take me back to you finding this picture. How did you find it, and what did you think when you first saw it? So Andy and I both teach at the University of Alabama, and for another class, we were looking through the photo archives of the Birmingham News, which came across these packets of negatives that said Cubans take over federal prison in Talladega. There's a little code on the top right corner that just has the year. The year, it was 1991. And I'm an old person. I graduated high school in 1991, and I had no memory of it. Um, Well, first of all, I didn't know what the photos were. So we scanned them, started looking through them. Like a lot of things, there's no, you know, a a prison takeover like this. Unless you're on the inside, there's not a whole lot to see until there is. But among these photos were these men on the roof, and they had these homemade signs that you could make out. One said, pray for us. One said, please media, justice, freedom, or death. It very quickly was revealed to us that like this is a much bigger story than just a prison takeover. Mm. And in the first episode, you cover what happens. But, I mean, tell me what happened in Talladega, Alabama in 1991. In 1991, there were 120 men from Cuba who were being detained there at the prison. And Talladega, the federal prison in Talladega, was basically the last stop for these men, many of whom had been detained for years in federal prisons as immigration detainees, not as prisoners serving a sentence, but as immigration detainees awaiting deportation. Once they were approved for deportation, or as the U.S. government says, repatriation to Cuba, they were moved to Talladega. And so these men were awaiting a deportation flight. In in August, uh, late August of 1991, uh, three of these men were out in a recreation yard playing handball, and they were able to basically overtake a guard, take his keys, go back into the unit, very quickly kind of took it over and released the other 115 or so detainees, and that takeover lasted 10 days. And so what exactly were they protesting? That's a good question. It's sort of complicated because most directly they did not want to be deported. They didn't want to go back to Cuba. Many of them feared persecution. They had left Cuba in the first place to come to the United States. All these men had come to the U.S. during the Mariel boat lift in 1980 when 125,000 people came to the U.S. in a matter of months. It's like one of the largest uh, refugee you know, mass migrations in the Western Hemisphere forever. You know, So they'd been in the country uh, at this point 11 years, and many of them had been detained for a lot of that time. So they were protesting their conditions, the conditions of their confinement. And at what point did you realize that this isn't about detainees taking over a prison in Alabama? How did you know there was something larger going on here? It's a story that unless you, you know, are Cuban or Cuban-American or you live in Miami, it's not a story that's very well known, I think, for a lot of Americans, that this, this mass migration event happened in 1980. 
the implications of this story of the boat lift and these detainees, we're still feeling today. We've come to think of the story as sort of the first chapter in our modern immigration detention system. At the time, in 1980, we detained very few people who came to this country as immigrants. Today, we detain tens of thousands, you know? Um, and so this really is the, the root of it. We had somebody say to us, the law had existed for immigration detention for a long time. We just hadn't been doing it. And Morial was really the excuse for the U.S. government to begin doing it. The first season of White Lies focused on civil rights and how white people lie. How does that theme continue to play out in the second season? Neither Andy nor I is Cuban or has any Cuban, you know, no claims to Cuban identity. And so we're careful not to make characterizations about the different waves of Cuban immigrants over the years. But undeniably, the first wave of Cubans after the revolution was generally sort of considered white. They were a professional class. Many of them, once they got to this country, sort of identified as white. Meaning they had the the identity of a white person, but they were actually from Cuba. That's right. I mean, I think once they came here, what one, one Cuban-American said, they sort of leaned into whiteness. You know, they were zoned for, for white schools and segregation academies in Miami. They built an empire in South Florida. Mariel is a much different group of Cubans, broadly speaking. Estimates have about a third of them as Afro-Cuban, or to use the racial categories of our country, black. And so what happened with this wave of, of Mariel refugees was that very quickly that went from being called the Freedom Flotilla, you know, and being celebrated and, oh, we're freeing these people from communist Cuba, to once white Americans saw images of single black men getting off of tr- overcrowded shrimp boats, it became something much darker. And, and the, the narrative about Morial changed like that. This sort of perception of criminality very quickly took hold about the Morial boat lift. And that perception, that story that was told about Morial Cubans would impact these men on the roof for the 10 years they were here. Is it safe to say that white people lied to not just other people, but to themselves to contend with their own racism? Yes. I think, yes. I mean, I think for sure. I mean, I think that's what we explored in the first season that we explored in a slightly different way in this season. Andy and I are both white, I should say, and that we have especially felt this way with season one, but I think it's true of season two. The things that white people say to each other when they're alone. I mean, we've had all sorts of people in this that we've interviewed for this season sort of talk about race in a way that felt, while we are having a conversation, while we are interviewing them, it felt immaterial to the conversation. But sometimes I think white people just can't resist the, the sort of like, well, you know what I'm talking about, you know? And so I think that's one of the things that benefits us as white reporters, frankly, do, telling these sorts of stories, is that people confide in us in, in a way that feels uh, like they're, they we're cons- conspirators, like co-conspirators. Well, I'm excited for season two of White Lies. Thank you for your time, Chip. Enjoy it, Cody. Thank you. That was Chip Brantley. He's the co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. He spoke with WBHM's Cody Short. Season two is out now with new episodes dropping on Thursdays.